and welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders. This is the show where I interview the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, I am so excited to be joined by someone of whom I am an incredibly big fan of. His name is Kwoklin Wan, and he is a third generation restaurateur and celebrity chef. The Call of the Kitchen has always been very strong for Kwoklin, and he spent the last number of years sharing his passion for all things delicious. That's been across written articles, interviews, appearances on the BBC, live demonstrations at food festivals, on TV. He made his debut recently presenting on the BBC's Good Morning Show and the Inside Out documentary. I have all of his books, other than his latest one at home, as do my family, the Chinese Takeaway Cookbook. Um, and I'm delighted to welcome Kwoklin to the show today to share a little about his diversity journey. Welcome to the show, Kwoklin. Yeah, thank you for having me. And are you sure I'm on the right show? Yeah. <laughs> I think you just said, I'm really not that amazing. I'm just a, a Midland-based Chinese guy that can cook. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love it and absolutely you are on the right show and and Quaklin, I, I know that I um I, I I was bugging you for a little while and I, I've been an ad, a real kind of a avid follower of some of the things that you do but one thing in particular um you know I've always always felt is that there you know perhaps aren't you know there aren't as many visible Chinese or or East Asian individuals in the public eyes perhaps even there should be. And so whether that is my background being Chinese myself and, and maybe seeing a part of myself in you or looking up to you because of that reason, I don't know. But you've done some superb things. So it's honestly, it's an absolute, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. And thanks for asking as well. So. <laughs> So for some of our listeners, Coughlin, who perhaps don't know you as well as I do, clearly, um, I wonder whether you could tell us a little bit about, about your background. You know, you say very modestly there, you're, you're, you're just a Chinese guy from the north of England. Talk to us about how it all started. Well, um, it was, well, I suppose it all started back in the 50s. So China um, went through a, a big revolution um, and um, the civil, sort of, kind of like a civil war kind of thing that was going on. In the 1950s, um, China started to jump into Hong Kong because obviously Hong Kong was British owned. Now, where my parents' village or my granddad's village was based was right on the border of China. And it got to a point of where my, my granddad said, you know what, I, I, you know, we need to get out of here, really. And um, so he decided to move to England. So he jumped on a boat. It took them a month. It took him a month to get over here. because it's, 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 you know, literally slow boat from China and all that. So and he landed in the UK and um, started off in Northampton. I think he had some friends in Northampton already. And then realised that Leicester at the time didn't have a Chinese restaurant. So in 1962, so he'd been in England for a couple of years at this point, but in 1962, um, opened Leicester's first, first Chinese restaurant. And literally back then it was known as a chop suey house. So they were serving a lot of British dishes like roast chicken, tomato soup, chicken soup, bread rolls with the odd chop suey dish on the menu. So, you know, like, you know, a chicken chop suey or um, a sweet and sour and, um, and, and that's kind of much how the family catering industry started. And before that, my granddad worked in the government 
and then obviously he brought the family over. My obviously my elder uncles they they helped with the fam- with the family business, and then my dad um, came. My dad was actually the first one of the family to actually fly over, so he, he didn't have to endure the one month journey. <laughs> so which is quite lucky, really. <laughs> Um, well yeah yeah definitely um in the 70s obviously Cantonese cuisine was getting quite big in London at the time so obviously um with what you know a lot of the big chefs that were working for like you know the important you know important people you know like the personal chefs they they started to come over to to England and they 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 were opening opening Cantonese restaurants and Cantonese ever so slightly different to what was being you know what that was readily available across the rest of the UK really and um, so my dad was very good friends with one of these chefs and brought him into Leicester and dad opened the first Cantonese restaurant in the Midlands. And uh, up until that point, if you wanted to experience, you know, slightly more, you know, like the Peking duck or, you know, these other dishes, you had to go to London, whereas now it's readily available in Leicester. And, you know, we used to have celebrities, especially when they, um, they were at the theatres, who were like Roy Hood and Molly, I think Molly Sugden, and they were playing the theatres in the Midlands. They'd come to my mum and dad's restaurant just to eat this Cantonese cuisine. So, you know, and that's kind of like how it all started. Of course, being wow. a British-born Chinese, you know, you kind of like, you grow up in the, in the, in the restaurant, in the industry, because mum and dad were always working and the restaurants were kind of like our playground. So I remember very fond memories of running around the restaurants and hiding under the tables and in and out of the kitchens <laughs> and getting told off. And we used to have this big storeroom with the big Hessian rice sacks and we'd be punching, you know, little boys and all that, punching the rice sacks and using it as a training tool kind of thing. And um, of course, you know, as we got slightly older, we were dragged kind of like kicking and screaming into the, into, um, to help out. Because if they were busy, it was like, you've got to come and help. And it wasn't really, wasn't a life choice. It was a lifestyle. And uh, that's how I learned the trade by working and growing up in this restaurant takeaway industry. So. Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing. I've got these, I've got these pictures in my mind of you punching uh, rice sacks now, which of course... Like, you know, cause I've done martial arts since I was four years old. So of course you can see, so I've got the scars and the... Because, you know, you're just little boys, you know, little boys, they're quite destructive, aren't they? So I, was, I was no different. You know, I like to punch and kick things and dissect things. Well, you know, I was never dissecting things. But, you know, so, you know, I just... I think little boys are naturally quite destructive. So they like to just, you know, they're quite boisterous, aren't they? So, so yeah. So the rice sacks were a perfect training tool, you know, so, you know, so especially, you know, when we were just there and had to kill some time, we'd be out there punching these rice sacks and getting sore hands from the process. Wow. I love how the influences of when you were younger have almost woven throughout your your career into adulthood. Because obviously you've got the you've got the kung fu schools, you've got the 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 hard as nails knuckles, and then also you've got the 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 kind of the the cuisine, the chefing, um, you know, the books all on the other side. Um how how did that come about? Was was it something that that you kind of you always wanted to do as a youngster? you know what what about the influences from your your mother and father say I suppose the life skills I never really thought people would be interested now obviously with martial arts it was something that I did as a hobby for a start and um, as I grew older um, I thought you know what I watched the Bruce Lee's film Dragon the Bruce Lee film which is a very loose take on how Bruce Lee started Jeet Kune Do and and stuff and I always thought you know I want my own kung fu school and of course, you know, by 2000, I was able to make that a reality. And it wasn't really until about five or six years ago. And I thought about it a little bit before that. I thought, you know what, I wonder if people would be interested in learning to cook Chinese food. And not just, you know, what I've found 
for the previous Chinese chefs that are out there, so obviously there's some phenomenal like Ken Hong. I mean, like, you know, he's, he's you know, an, an icon, really. But he was sharing dishes that I suppose that he recognised um, from, you know, growing up in, I think, is, 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 is he San Francisco? He's America, isn't he, somewhere? Mm. So, But he was sharing dishes that he recognised. Now, the problem is with us British people, and especially the, the Westerners that eat Chinese food, they know what a curry is, they know what a sweet and sour is, they know what a chow mein is, but they didn't know what a lion head soup was or a stuffed aubergine with black bean sauce or a pickled vegetable hot pot. You know, so these were the dishes that were being shared in different cookbooks. And, you know, I, I just thought, you know what, let's just teach people how to how simple really it is to cook Chinese takeaway food at home. And, you know, I, I've, I've been very lucky. I'm not going to lie. You know, the public have got right behind me and it's um, clearly a subject that they wanted to learn. And the, the books have been, you know, the books have flown, literally flown off the shelves. And I've been invited onto this morning in the BBC and I've just finished creating my own, you know, making my own TV show. So, you know, I, th I think I was just at the right place at the right time with the right product. <laughs> That's all it is, really. Well, so. you're very modest there, but I can see exactly why the British public love this. Because ultimately, you know, you look at Britain, Britain is a rich smorgasbord of different mm. individuals, different cultures. I think there is that real kind of fondness for Chinese cuisine, whether that be the westernised version or not. Um, I know you and I have talked about it, but I was adopted by white British parents. And so mm. whilst I feel, I feel probably more British in a way than I do Chinese because I don't know you know some of the you know the, the dragon head aubergine or whatever they might be some of the the kind of the the archaic classic Chinese dishes but what I do know is that western take and obviously growing up in early years in Hong Kong um you know some of the dishes that we love which appear in your cookbooks you know the sweet and sours the the really great kind of the veggie dishes as well the, the beautiful rice dishes really really kind of come to the fore and you know it, it's food that everyone can be cooking um pretty much every day and it's healthy as well the crazy thing is, you know, we're talking about this diversity and how Chinese food. Now, food has this inherent capability of bringing these things together. So as much as we are, you know, we're Chinese born in the sense that, our, you know, in our biological parents were Chinese, well, my dad was anyway. Um, but the food that we ate, we're, we're, exactly, we're exactly, exactly the same. So even though you were brought, you know, brought up with your parents, the English parents and stuff, you were still eating the same food that I was. So, and this goes for every single person out there that's ever been to a Chinese takeaway or restaurant. So I think the beauty of it is that sort of like by sharing these dishes with these people, I'm not just sharing the food that I ate growing up, I'm sharing the food that they ate growing up, even though they've come from a completely different background to both of us. Mm -hmm. And this is the beauty of food. It is, it absolutely is. I, I, I... I love food. I think we all do. We all have our favourites, don't we? And Chinese takeaway, Chinese food is an absolute firm staple. Obviously, I would say that. Um, maybe I'm a little biased, but I think, you know, the vast majority of friends and, you know, the family that we have all love a great Chinese meal. Exactly. If you think about it, it, it really is comfort food because chow mein, carbohydrate, you know, Chinese chips, carbohydrate, the fried rice is carbohydrate. And then you've got these sweet sauces, whether that be a sweet and sour or a honey and lemon or a Kung Po or a um, hoisin mixed vegetable or something. And it's, it's, it's straight away, it's food that you can sit there in a, you know, you can literally just have a big bowl of rice, a few chips in there, some prawn crackers and this gloopy sweet and sour and eat it oh. on a spoon. 
and it's Yum. perfect comfort <laughs> food. And it's something that every single one of us that have you know pretty much done since the 1970s, what, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, we I think all of us have tried at some stage have tried that particular you know mashup of food. You know, so and all it is, you know, I'm just showing you. Well, look, this is how easy it is. You can cook it at home now. So absolutely. So Chinese <laughs> food really is the the spice of life, or the, the <laughs> sweet much. and sour <laughs> spice of life. <laughs> So, so whilst we're talking about food, let's delve in deeper into some of the different kinds of flavours. I'm sure that those listening in are thinking, oh, yeah, I know my favourite down at the local Chinese takeaway. That'll be sweet and sour. Or that'll be my special fried rice. But where have all these different flavours come from? The Chinese say that there are five predominant flavours. So you've got the sweet and sour, which you've just mentioned. You've got the salty, you've got the sour and you've got the spicy. I and mean, we've said sour already. So you've got sweet, sour, spicy, salty. Oh, what's the last one? You put me on the spot now. There's another one anyway. (laughs) And I suppose the trick is then really is to play on that. So if you think about even nowadays that you can have a caramel chocolate bar, it's playing on that sweet and the salty. And obviously, but the Chinese have been doing this for a long time. So it's like, you know, when we're having a, um, I don't know, a, a shredded crispy chili beef, We've got the sweet, we've got the sour, we've got the spicy, and then we play on textures. So you've got the crunchy carrots, you've got the crunchy crispy beef, you know, you've got, and then it's like, you know, if you sprinkle it with some some sesame seeds, you've got that, you've got these other flavors and textures all happening all at the same time. And I suppose it's about creating that perfect mouthful. And, you know, so and I think if once you can, you know, once you can tweak out these different recipes and, you know, you can take a recipe and you can think, well, if I want to add a little bit of crunch. So last night I cooked um, a satay chicken udon noodles. So we've got that spicy, we've got the sweet, we've got the crunchy peanuts going through it. We've got the soft udon noodles. Then you've got the sweet peppers and, and then you've got the onion that we fried off and we've caramelized. So they're naturally sweet. And by the time you've popped it in your mouth and you've got this mixture of flavors and textures happening, this is where the magic happens. And this is why it's comfort food, because it's not eating for the sake of it. Eating, I mean, the Chinese also say that eating is a necessity of life. No different from breathing. If we don't breathe, we end up dying. If we don't eat, the same thing happens. Therefore, let's make it as, as, as pleasurable as, it, as possible. So when we do eat, let's just not waste the time just by grabbing a snack. Let's eat something that's going to make all of our senses and really, you know, trans, you know, just, you know, just take us away into this mouth sensation just for a few minutes while we're eating. So. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's almost like escapism through food, isn't it? Fascinated by food and eats far too much of it. So. Is that where the Chinese five spice comes from, do you think? Yeah, I guess I suppose it's a play on those flavours, you know, the star anise, the cinnamon and, you know, the mixing of the Szechuan peppercorns and everything else. It really is just about creating that mouth sensation. And you've got to remember the Chinese is the oldest living civilization in the world. So they've had a lot of time to practice. It was 4,000 years now, that the, you know, for, for over 4,000 years. So, you know, so you think about you go right across Asia, even into sort of like, you know, into Europe and, you know, you've got your pasta dishes, which all originated originally from China, from the Great Silk Road, you know, or the old Silk Road. You know, so China have influenced food right across the world for over thousands of years. So you wonder why people love it. It's because we've known it our entire life. Our generations before us have known it. 
Mm-hmm. I've got to ask, what is your favorite dish from, from the different cookbooks and also your favorite veggie dish as well? Because I think vegetarian food can be just as exciting as that which has meat in it. When I wrote the vegetarian Chinese takeaway cookbook last year, and it, when it came out last year, actually, um, it, it, I loved writing that book because, again, it was about how do we create dishes without trying to mock meat? You tend to find that a lot of vegetarian recipes, they use mock chicken, mock pork, mock duck. Whereas how can we enhance the flavors of these vegetables and still have that mouth sensation, that flavor explosion without having to mimic another meat protein? And it's quite easily done. So you mentioned about which is my favorite dish. Um, I, I do a cauliflower yuk sum. So these are little cauliflower florets and they're stir fried in a mushroom stir fry sauce with water chestnuts, bamboo shoots, onions, carrots, cashew nuts, fried vermicelli and served in an ice cold iceberg lettuce leaf. And you, by the time you put the filling in, you rolled it up and you've got like this lettuce burrito full of cauliflower you know this it's just it's just you know you can you know <laughs> i can taste it now i'm gonna start my mouth is actually watering Coughlin. <laughs> and it's all about tricking the senses not to not to crave meat or not to feel like you're missing out i think as meat eaters you tend to find if, if you're eating a dish that's vegetarian you think oh something's missing so the the key is is to try and replicate that without having to put a meat protein or a meat substitute in just by playing with these flavors and textures that's a really great point because I see this so much um, on the supermarket shelves these days, um, you know, which will be meat substitute or trying to pretend to be meat. And whilst I have tried a little bit of it, some of it is not too bad. Um, you know, actually vegetarian food for what it is, and that is often fresh, um, you know, tasty, you know, crunchy, crispy, um, you name it. Why pretend to be anything else when you can enhance, as you say, the natural flavors of the vegetables. 100%. And you'll, you'll also find when you're eating the vegetables and when they're cooked properly and then with the right spices and the right textures, you don't get that crash or that link. You know, sometimes you eat something and three hours later you can still taste it. I don't personally like that. I like to have a clean palate. Um, so, you know, when I finished eating within 10, 15 minutes, having a drink, clean palate and vegetables cooked properly, you can do that very easily. You know, so and it, again, you just don't need these substitutes. You don't need the, all these E numbers and all this. You know, what, how, what have they done to this product to make it have that texture? Because that's not the texture of the product. So, absolutely, I think the best things are are absolutely simple, um, and that's what I love about one of your books. It's a Chinese takeaway book where you're literally using only five ingredients, and it just one it makes it so simple because anyone can do it, and number two, you know exactly you can see what is going in. There's no need to be kind of looking on the back of the packet and thinking, oh my goodness, um, you know which and what went into this, and how long has that been, you know, sitting around on the shelf for it. Yeah. you know five things how easy is that yeah it, again another very interesting one to um, to write actually and again could you can you really create authentic chinese takeaway food with only five ingredients you can you have to cheat a little bit 
So, you know, whereas, you know, let's take that sweet and sour again. If you try to do sweet and sour with five ingredients, well, you're going to get the sauce and you're not going to have anything in it. So, but what you can do now, there are a lot of um, supermarkets, Chinese oriental supermarkets now selling jars of sweet and sour sauce. So again, just by putting in a few sort of like vegetables and proteins, you can cheat it and you, you can do it. You just need to shop around and find the right products. So again, the satay chicken noodles that I cooked last night, which was five ingredients, it was udon noodles, satay sauce, chicken, onions and peppers. There's your five, you know, so and it, and it tasted fantastic. And that was my tea last night. So so very happy me. <laughs> simple and I guess as we're talking about you know how important it is to feed yourself and I love that you shared the, the Chinese the, the Chinese take on how important it is to feed yourself just as important as it is to breathe because you wouldn't survive without it you know I, I wonder whether you could talk to us a little bit about kind of the uh, you know the future generations of, of leaders and I guess making sure that they're well fed not just physically of course but also iteratively um, when it comes to education learning and, and giving back because I know you do a huge amount not only on the charity side of things but um you know for you with the kids and, and educating a wider society this is something that is absolutely critical um to how you go about your your day-to-day -day life and, and ethos as it were okay <laughs> there's a lot there um I think the first thing is you've got to get somebody interested you know whether that's food or whether that is education or whether that's life skills if you can't make them interested, they're not going to want to learn anyway. Now, I knew this growing up in school. I was your typical little boy, didn't like school. I was overweight. I was half Chinese. We were growing up in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, racism wasn't known as racism. It was just banter. <laughs> Therefore, you had to take it. And at school was one of those places where I hated. At age 16 years old, I left school. No GCSEs, no nothing because I, I, I really, really dislike school. Had school offered me something where, uh, you know, a subject that I, I could really get my teeth into, I would have excelled. So I later went back to um, college. Um, like I said, I was into my martial arts anyway. And um, I've always been a big guy, but it's like in my late teens, early twenties, I lost a lot of weight just through training. And um, so I decided to do a, a degree in sports therapy and um I suppose PT becoming like a physical training instructor and then um, I was the guy that was getting top numbers at the end you know in each of the exams that we were doing I was getting 97 percent pass rates purely because it was a subject that I enjoyed learning so this goes you know when we're talking about teaching people to cook or teaching people about education uh, we've got to make it we've got to make it interesting we've got to get we've got to we've got to spark something in that person that they're actually going to want to learn what we're actually trying to trying to teach them Otherwise, we do, you know, it, it just falls on deaf ears because, you know, they can talk and we can talk and it's, you know, they're not really listening because they don't really want to be there, you know, so, and that, that's all it is. And it doesn't matter what we're trying, it doesn't matter what we're trying to get across to people, whether it's about diversity or whether, you know, if they're not interested or they have not interest, unfortunately, you know, in, until we can spark something in that person for them to change their mentality and their mindsets for so all of a sudden it is something they're interested in, then we can get the message across. And I'm not sure about you, Coughlin, but I kind of think the key to that in one sense, yes, it's about whether they are passionate about um, the particular subject, but it's also 
you know, what emotion is that going to spark off inside? So when it comes to food, you know, I'm giddily nodding away there. And I'm sure our listeners are as well, because they're thinking, oh, God, I can actually, I can taste that, I can feel it, you can feel the emotion almost that, um, you know, eating that food brings about. And it's the same when it comes to, you know, whether it's sport and you're remembering, you know, when you were younger, you know, being, being big, you know, I used to get teased for having a, you know, kind of chubby, face and I was quite chubby when I was younger you know and having you know eyes that look different from from everyone else and it kind of it, it sparks that feeling inside and makes me think of this quote that I love which is oh, I have to remember it now is um people don't remember what you say or what you did but they remember how you made them feel and if you remember you know, or you think of something that that you you know, I, I guess sparks off that 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 piece of emotion inside. You naturally uh, find that the curiosity uh, comes with it, and I, I guess you want to learn. But I think you know that's the you know almost the great thing about what you were saying there is you know you you know it, it's something that you know it sparks that emotion. It makes you then want to learn, and that's how. If if, I, if we're able to talk to somebody and we're able to make them recollate. Uh, yeah remember a um something that happened in their past so whether it's you know whether, whether they're sitting with their family and they they just remember the na- the, nan- the nan and uncle came around that day and they were had sweet and sour king prawns or something and it got tipped on the floor and it kind of like kicks off all these sort of like you know all, yeah, the, all these memories that's when people become start becoming interested because they can relate to what you're trying to teach them and then all of a sudden we're showing them well that's a dish and this is how you, you can recreate it and you can you know so but yeah, you have to spark that interest in these people. You, you've really got to get them, like you say, emotionally involved. And if we're able to talk about it with passion and with, um, and hopefully, you know, not pull them in, but sort of like, you know, yeah, they, they, they need to feel it too. And if they don't feel it, you know, they're not going to be as interested. You know, you know say someone's coming across, you know, I'm going to teach you how to make a tomato pasta sauce. And if you've got no interest in that at all, why, you know, you're just not going to be remembering what's going on. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. I'm going to dig a little bit into your your background if that's okay just on the childhood side because you mentioned there um, and I hope you don't mind me asking but you mentioned there when you were you know a bit bigger when you were younger um, things like that um, grow, grow, growing up how how did you find it kind of growing up in the north as a minority and I ask that because you know, when I reflect on on my childhood, you know, coming to the UK at the age of six, I was quite confident in Hong Kong. Uh, yeah. I seem to remember in the international schools, but then coming to the north, there was one Chinese takeaway in our town, which was Harrogate. Um, the little boy used to play with my younger brother. We were the only Chinese children in the school. And it was suddenly, I remember being... I don't know, suddenly going really shy and inside myself because I was, um, you know, really quite different. How was your experience when when you were younger, when 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 you and your brother were growing up and your sister, of course? Yeah, um, well, it was the it was the seventies. So um, so I started school in where is it seventy seven? I guess I think it was, and it was uh, I was four years old and yeah, we were the only Chinese children in the school at the time. And, you know, obviously my mum's English. So obviously, so 
I'm quite lucky in a sense that I'm able, I, you know, sometimes I see myself as English, sometimes I see myself as Chinese. As I've got older and because of what I'm doing, especially with the martial arts and the cooking now, I do see, you know, I, I do tend to call myself a BBC, a British born Chinese. But, you know, as, as a child, we were just children. And it wasn't until obviously children, they will, they will always find something about somebody, whether they wear glasses or whether they've got chubby cheeks or whether they've got, you know, they're overweight or whether they've got black hair or blue eyes or brown hair. Or whatever. They'll always find something. So, of course, it's a, I didn't obviously it wasn't majority of it was being fat because I was a, I was a fat little kid. You know, I'm fat. I'm, I'm a big guy now. I'm 26 stone. Um Big guy, big personality, though. Quite oh, yeah, you know, you know, it's kind of like it's me, and it's sort of like um, this is this is how I've been my entire life. There's only a short period of my life where I lost loads of weight, and then, but it came back on again. It's you know, it's probably not the healthiest lifestyle choice, but then I I, I do stay active, and you know, so. But anyways, it's but that was the first thing I noticed as a child that you know we were the I was the fat little boy in school, and then as I got slightly older, and I think the children were found out because that I was half and my, you know my dad was Chinese and that's when the Chinese thing started to come out where you know you, well you're a fat chink you know that was you know that was pretty much what I was called and but you think I've got quite a thick skin so I, I can see that it's sort of like it upsets you the word but for me it's a word that I've learned to kind of like own so it doesn't offend me anymore and whether that's because I'm half English as well I don't know or whether that's because people can say it so many times and if I can control the way that it makes me feel, surely that puts me in a better position. So I don't let that word offend me. So when, so, you know, it's just you know, little kids in the seventies and eighties, they didn't know better. I hope to God now that as they've got older, they're not still using that kind of um, language, but you know, you can't people, <laughs> I can't control I can control what I say and what I do and how I feel I can't control how they feel or what they're going to say so therefore I don't worry about it and if I, it gets used it gets used and like just it water off a duck's back and it has to be that way otherwise it's just going to upset my day I don't have time to be upset Mm-hmm. So. I love that you absolutely own it and I know it's a different thing when you're younger and uh, you know I remember similar instances of that amongst amongst others and at the time it makes me shrink a bit into my skin but I think as you get older and as you clearly have you, you just don't care anymore or maybe you do care and you just start to own this as a bit of a superpower because um, you know the difference and the diversity is actually a great thing because that is as you said before it's the authentic you isn't it and without those experiences you wouldn't necessarily be where you are today exactly and you know what I think it's made all of us excel in what we've done so obviously my brother's gone out there and he's become this mega famous tv personality multi-talented you know the guy can do fashion he can cook he can dj you know the guy just whatever he puts his hand at he's fantastic at my sister she's a family lawyer um you know she's you know she's excelled in what she does and for me, you know, you know, I've done what I've done. You know, I've had very successful kung fu schools. I've had big shows across the, you know, across the NEC. I'm now obviously sharing people, you know, sharing my skills as a Chinese chef, and I'm a cookbook author, believe it or not. You know, like so, it's quite a weird thing really to say. Well, I'm an author. This is a guy without any GCSEs, and you know, I've just made a TV show. So, but then if I, you know, we're lucky in the sense that we can shrug it off and just, you know, let, let these people do what they're doing. 
if I spent as much time worrying about what these people were saying to me back in the 70s, 80s and 90s even, I wouldn't be where I am now. But I think it's, it's probably given me the drive to think, well, you know what, I can do all of this and I'm taking this, they see as a negative. So if they see me as a Chinese guy or a chink or whatever they want to call me, that's their negative. My positive is I'm a Chinese guy that can do Kung Fu and cook. And I've taught people across the world. And I do mean across the world. You know, I've taught Kung Fu in America. I've taught, you know, my books are being sold in, in, in America, Australia, Estonia, Belgium, you know. So that negative is my positive. Because if I wasn't Chinese, I wouldn't know how to do this. That is it. You've absolutely just turned it on its head. That is so, so inspirational. And that is exactly what I would love all of those who are younger or going up in their careers or wondering what they're going to do next to hear and be inspired by. Because it is, you know, ultimately, whether you whether you like it or not, in one sense, you and others are a role model for our leaders of the future, ultimately. Yeah, so that's it. Yeah, like I say, if we can all just take that and just say, well, look, you know, just like you say, you've got to believe in yourself and you've got to know, you've got to understand what your skill set is. It's take, it t- takes a long time to find out what your real, real skill set is. But once you find it, just you know, become the best that you can be in that skill set, regardless of ethnicity of where you've come from, whether you grew up in a council estate like I did or whether you grew up in a, you know, a mansion somewhere else. It doesn't matter because it's at the end of the day, it's really what are you able to share? And it, it, like I say, for the people that go out there, like myself and my brother, and we've decided that we want to show a mass amount of people. So we want to try and get our messages through to as many people as possible. It really is important that we just believe in what we're talking about and know your subject matter. You've really got to know your subject matter. There's no point. You're not going to know the answer to everything. Some people, some, sometimes I get questions and I'm like, you know what, I've got no idea. And unless I Google it or look it up, I'm not going to know. But then that's how I learn as well. And then there's other things that say, well, how do I get the, um, the walk of the breath, you know, the breath of the walk, sorry. And it, you know, it's about the patina that builds up in the walk. And these are things I know because I've done it. And I've practiced it and I've kind of like honed it. And it could be down to, well, you know, Jeet Kune Do, the way of the intercepting fist. Well, how do I intercept an opponent who's trying to attack me? So we can talk about the different possibilities. And I know this subject matter for, for, because for the last 40 years, I've practiced that. So, and it has nothing to do with whether I'm English or Chinese or I'm half caste or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so. It's hard work, it's resilience, and it's that thirst for life and wanting to learn ultimately. But I, I, I love the humility in, in, in how you say, you know, look, you know, sometimes you don't know the answers to everything. And, um, you know, I find the same myself. I think most of us, if not all of us, suffer imposter syndrome at some point in our life, i.e. we're thinking, oh, my God, everyone here knows more than I do. I best keep my mouth shut. But Actually, um, a trend that I've started to notice, certainly in leaders and even corporate leaders, which is where I spend a lot of my time, is that the most inspirational ones are the ones that are willing to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, do you know what? I don't know the answer here. 
or actually I'm going to throw this out as a question to experts because I am not sure. You know, when it comes to diversity, inclusion, belonging and equity, it's my subject matter. I could talk about it all day, every day, you know, through from visible diversities, our, um, you know, our gender, our age, our, you know, our ethnicity through to invisible diversities like mental health and wellness and parenthood and caring responsibilities, whatever else it may be. But I still don't know absolutely everything there is to know about each and every one of those facets because learning as I see it is is a lifelong journey some of that journey of learning is through the physical you know boots on the ground hands to the walk as you would say kind of experience um you know but some is you know perhaps through kind of reading and, and speaking to others but it is that constant building onto that foundation of knowledge that gives that um i think that confidence then to say hey you know this is what i think this is my opinion this is the subject matter that i know but i don't know everything and i think once you call yourself a master that's when you start like you say, you put yourself on this pedestal and that's where you become vulnerable. Yeah, um, there's no going back, is there? <laughs> see yourself as a student the entire time and just thinking, well, we're all students. There's always someone out there who's going to know that little bit more. And, you know, like, and sometimes the most fun conversations you can have is when you're trying to problem solve or you're trying to work something out with people and you're all learning together. And then you go on and next time you do a speech or next time you do an interview, you can talk about that. But you know what it is now because you have that answer because it's another thing that you've learned. So. Indeed. I bet you've got some great Chinese proverbs and things like that from your Kung, your, your, your Kung Fu days. There, there is one that I've, I've heard you say, or I think actually perhaps it was in, in one of your books where you say, uh, life is an adventure, live it, love it, eat it. And I just thought that's absolutely, that that's is just brilliant. That we say really. So yeah. that's it, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, like I say, how boring would life be without food? And uh, say, yes, let's live it, let's love it, and let's just eat our way through it, because that's what we're here to do. It's nice, actually, when I get my dad involved as well, because there's stuff now that I talk to my dad about, and you don't talk to him about it. So, you know, I see my mum and dad all the time, um, literally four or five times a week. And um, you sit sit in the living room, and you kind of do the same thing, TV's on, or everybody's playing on their bloody phones these days. But it's great, because sometimes when sort of like, you know, we do an interview, and I just say, okay, dad, look, I've been asked to do this interview, do you want to do it with me? And I find all this stuff out about my dad that I never knew. And I say, and the only way you can do that is by having these conversations. The art of conversation is dying. Zoom has been Zoom has been fantastic over lockdown because it's making more people talking. You know, and there's one thing talking to someone on the phone, but to actually see somebody's expressions, you know, that you know that makes complete difference. Just by being able to look at you and talk to you, you know, it, it makes the conversation. It's like we're sitting in the same room, isn't it? Kind of thing. And, you know, you know, so, you know, but yeah, conversation is so important. And I love talking because the more I talk, the more I remember, because, you know, it's not something I would sit and think about. But when someone asks me about it, I can sort of like, you know, massage the gray brain cells and try and get this information back out again. And all of a sudden I'm remembering things that, oh, wow, I forgot about that, but I remembered it now. So it's cool. Oh, I love it. I'd love to meet your dad. I'll have to interview him. Interesting guy in his um. Typical Chinese guy, you know, in a sense that they just he tries to be funny and he's not. <laughs> so he's oh, like, I'd love to interview. Do you know, I've been trying to convince my dad of late to to come on the podcast show, but his voice is really not good. I mean, I might try him again later and see. Yeah. He keeps promising me, but I love it. So he's talked to him about um, it. Well, 
the stories of Mr. Mock, who was his old boss in Hong Kong. And I guess I still see it from kind of that slightly Western, um, that Western lens, because we never learned Cantonese or, you know, Mandarin if we were in, 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 in China, if, but we're in Hong Kong. Um, Dad always tells me these stories. I'm like, Dad, come on the podcast, because I would love to talk to you about that. Because you yeah. don't, and it's weird, isn't it? Even though they're, they're, they're your parents, you know, you've, you know, grown up your entire life with them. It's not until you get older that you start becoming more and more interested in their backgrounds. You know, when you're young, when I was young, I know selfishly probably did not care as much as I should have done, you know, would be off thinking about myself and, you know, what I was doing with my friends and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But the older you get, the more you find it intriguing, you know, to actually think about the experiences they had. You know, dad had a major culture shock when he came back to the UK. It wasn't going. It was coming back. Hated it hated it wanted to go back missed the Chinese people missed Mr Mark missed the people in the office missed the culture you know couldn't stand it you know you get them talking about kind of China and Hong Kong and Mr Mock and the noodle factory and all this kind of stuff and he's just off on one Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, get a dictaphone going and just talk to him about it so don't let him know you're recording yeah it's kind of my plan I might try and capture him on zoom and I'll just record the beginning of the podcast later um, and get him onto it that, that's my kind of my, my sneaky plan I did think over because I've been reaching out to other inspirational Chinese people and, and some who are like Chinese people in corporate businesses as well yeah. to see whether they they join on the podcast show because I want to do kind of a special month for Chinese New Year where we do um, you know literally all East Asian um, kind of chats and education around um, you know Chinese New Year and, and kind of Chinese yeah. culture and things like that so it kind of I shouldn't say it annoys me because I am into diversity and inclusion in all different ways shapes and forms but when people talk in this kind of the, the BAME terminology, which means Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, or we talk Asian, people instantly, well, I think more often than not presume Asian is Asian, Indian or Asian, Pakistani. You know, they don't mm. think Asian, Oriental or Chinese. And um, I'm just genuinely curious. So I'm really... When I hear the name Asian, I think Chinese straight away because I suppose because I am Chinese. East Asian, and obviously we pigeonhole it kind of thing. They, okay, East Asia, we know exactly where that is now. So, but yeah. yeah oh, really? So. That's interesting. It's just perception, and I guess, isn't it? When I hear Asian, I think mm, Indian. I don't think, I think Oriental when I think of myself. But then you, I was talking to um, my husband's uncle about this, and he said Oriental is quite offensive over in the States. I was like, is it? He said, yeah, yeah, no, it's Asian is what you would say. It's not, uh, it's not Oriental. But anyway. So anyway, Coughlin, I'm trying not to keep you too long. So I know I'm probably <laughs> chewing your ears off here. Is there was one last question that I did want to I did want to ask you, and that is if you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, or indeed someone who's in a similar situation, maybe they're the I don't know the, the fat kid at school, or they're the the odd one out because they look a bit different, or um, they haven't you know studied at the same school or university as other people, whatever it might be. Um, you know, what advice would you give to the young you or someone in a similar situation? It really is if you see yourself with any negatives, make that negative the thing that you concentrate on most and turn it around. Really is because I say if it wasn't for the fact that I was fat and i proved everybody so a 26 stone can still move as fast as a 11 stone kung fu guy and i've proven that time and time again yeah 
if it wasn't for the fact that I was Chinese, I probably wouldn't have the experience of learning um, what I've learned about, um, about the Chinese culture, the Chinese food. And um, I was able to celebrate Christmas and Chinese New Year. I had, two celebra- I had two major celebrations every year. And then I was able to celebrate Easter and Mooncake Day or the Autumn Festival. So it was a win-win for me. I was getting money and food sort of like four times a year where you guys were only getting it twice a year. So that's a, that's a positive from that negative of being Chinese, surely, you know. So it was, you know, so, so just anything that, you know, if there's a negative thrown at, thrown at you, whether you're ginger, you wear thick glasses, um, you're black, yellow, orange, pink, green, let's turn that into a positive and really show people what that green person can do. I love that. That's it. Mooncakes, bread pockets and Christmas cake. Win, win, win situation. Birthdays on top of that. It's brilliant. So I'd get, you know, it's fantastic. It was, you know, even this is a bit naughty. So my dad was a bit of a naughty Chinese man. (laughs) So the Chinese like to gamble. And it wasn't for the fact that it was illegal. Well, it is illegal because he used to have his friends over to the restaurant and they'd gamble but they wouldn't gamble for like 10 quid here and there. They'd gamble thousands of pounds over the table every night. Now, as a young British born Chinese guy, it's known as Kowloon boy. So I was a Kowloon boy. So my dad would be playing Mahjong in the restaurant or cards or whatever it was that they were playing. And they'd be gambling big money. And you'd go around and you'd ask anybody if they wanted a coffee or a cup of tea or even a bowl of fried rice. Now we've got to remember this is the eighties and you'd go and you'd make someone a cup of coffee and get a 20 pounds tip for making somebody a cup of coffee. So 20 pound is what, the equivalent of what, 100 pound these days? It's gotta be, hasn't yeah. it? And but it's still not bad. Hey, I, I'm volunteering my services. That is not bad. Send me round the marjong table. By about two, three o'clock in the morning, I'd be knackered and I'd go to bed. Whereas my brother, you know, he's like pr- proper likes his money. And he'd be <laughs> up until six, seven o'clock in the morning with these guys. He'd make three, 400 quid in a night. And this is in the eighties playing Kowloon boy making these guys cups of teas cups of coffees a bowl of fried rice here a sandwich because they were too busy gambling they don't want to leave the table that is absolutely brilliant another positive for being Chinese (laughs) yeah it's living up to the positive Chinese stereotypes for two pound a week we're earning (laughs) 200 quid a night God damn it. I actually did a paper round as well. That was, I'm wishing that like, I was in your restaurant being a, being a Mahjong girl. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kowloon, by the way, we always refer to it as Kowloon Boy. That's what we were told it was called. But yeah, so basically we were just like the guys that went around and yeah, well, literally we were, you know, 10, 11 years old making cups of teas and stuff. You know, we were so young. So, Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Brilliant, so brilliant story. There's absolutely no negatives at all about being mixed race or being Asian. You know, there's so many, you just got to make it work for you. Learn to make it work for you. Quaklin, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Honestly, it's been it's been emotional in a positive way. Um, it's been inspirational. And I know everyone who's been listening in ha- has got something from this in terms of education, whether it be, you know, fondness of Chinese cuisine through to actually showing up as your authentic self because proof of the pudding is in the eating and you've shown ultimately that, you know, it's about showing up as who you are because it doesn't matter 
whatever what anyone else thinks. You, know, you can turn all of those negative connotations into real positive superpowers. And hey, look at where you are. I'm just absolutely in awe and delighted to have had you as a guest on the show. So thank you. Thank you so much for asking me on. It's been loved it. Love chatting to you. And I really can't wait until we can actually meet face to face. I know. I can't wait. And absolutely um we'll be there with bells on with the team showing up as your your restaurant and the this shirt is able to be new are i'm pretty sure of that so <laughs> my name is Layla mckenzie dallas and you've been listening to the superb superhero that is Quatlin one uh, this is a diverse and inclusive leaders podcast show it's a special for chinese new year make sure you check out Quatlin's cookbooks and keep an eye out for his show uh, you will not be disappointed um, you can check out the show notes as well if you missed anything at all at www.dalglobal.org forward slash podcast and we'll look forward to seeing you again very soon